This podcast is supported by award number 2019JUFX K001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, research findings, and recommendations presented here are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reflections on Research. I'm your host, Mike Geringer, the Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. And as always, this uh, podcast is brought to you by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, uh, through their National Mentoring Resource Center, which those of us at Mentor are lucky enough to facilitate that project on their behalf. And we thank OJJDP for their investment in youth mentoring and specifically in kind of the research-to-practice work that this project is all about. We're always trying to improve the mentoring that young people get in programs by applying research and kind of what we know from studies to the work that uh, mentors do in programs around the country. So thanks for joining us. We have a really timely and interesting topic to talk about today, and that is e-mentoring. Obviously, with the coronavirus pandemic, uh, there's been a, I think, increased uh, emphasis on e-mentoring and a lot of folks in our field turning to virtual mentoring solutions in really a time of crisis where they didn't know how to get matches meeting together and engaging in mentoring activities at a distance uh, during social distancing. So very timely topic, and I'm thrilled to have the person that I consider to be the leading expert on the use of technology and mentoring relationships in our field. And that is Michelle Kaufman. Now, those of you who listened to the first episode of this season on the podcast, you'll remember Michelle came on and talked about uh, some of the research that she's been doing around mentoring and substance misuse. Uh, But Michelle also happens to be really an absolute expert on the use of technology and apps and other uh, digital tools in mentoring uh, context. So we're going to be talking about that quite a bit today. Uh, Michelle is an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, She's a social psychologist by training, and her research focuses on health disparities created by harmful social contexts and unequal access to power and resources. Michelle's most recent work looks at adolescent health and the intersection of mentoring and technology, as I just said, and on preventing teen substance use, sexual risk, and mental distress. She also holds one of the only NIH grants focused on mentoring to prevent adolescent substance use. So it's really great to have you with us today, Michelle. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you. That's a very kind introduction. And thank you for coming back for a second podcast. You're one of the few brave souls that's managed to uh, come back twice. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that. Before we get too deep into the research on e-mentoring, I wanted to just back up a second and, and set the stage a little bit by kind of defining what we mean by e-mentoring. I think people think all kinds of things when they hear that phrase. Uh, Some people may think of a complicated platform of some kind with all kinds of bells and whistles. 
other people might just think, well, we do mentoring over the phone or something you know, that simple. So I just want to create some clarity around that. How do you, in your work, define e-mentoring and kind of what are the different flavors or, or different variants on it that we should keep in mind as we talk about e-mentoring broadly? Yeah, great first question. So for me, e-mentoring is using digital technology in a mentoring relationship. So this could mean a completely virtual relationship, or it could mean a hybrid approach where the mentor and the mentee meet together in person, but then they also use digital technology to keep in touch in between those in-person meetings. Some programs will have mentors and mentees work together on an activity using a website or a computer program, but that, that's not e-mentoring, you know, unless they only communicate through the technology. E-mentoring could also include a whole slew of technologies from video calls to texting to the use of proprietary platforms. The possibilities for what an e-mentoring relationship looks like are really endless. And I'll, I'll give you an example from my own work as a mentor. So I currently mentor a high school student in China who is interested in a career in public health. So we meet on Zoom for an hour every two weeks to discuss her career goals, topics of interest, and I will give her some reading assignments and we'll talk about those. I've never met her in person and probably never will, uh, but we've developed a meaningful relationship as I've gotten to know her just through those video calls. Oh, that's really cool. I, I had no idea that you were uh, mentoring in that particular way. I'm just curious, how did you wind up in that relationship, did she reach out to you? Was this through a colleague of, of yours? How did that come about? So she's uh, part of a program called Eureka, and they match um, high school students who have a particular career interest with an expert in the field. Um, and so the Eureka program actually reached out to me and they said, that, you know, we've got a couple of students who are interested in careers in public health. Would you be interested in being a mentor? And so, you know, I got more information about it and I said, well, this sounds really cool. And, and the fact that it was, it was virtual fit my lifestyle. You know, I have a busy career, small child, and, and now with the pandemic, you know, even more complications. And so being able to give back as a mentor, but do it in a way that was flexible for my schedule and whatnot really allowed me to say yes to it. Oh, thank you for kind of explaining how that came about. I, I think that's a really good example of the power of e-mentoring. I mean, here you are uh, in a relationship with somebody on the other side of the world, literally. And I think listeners to this podcast that uh, heard our episode earlier in the year with Julia Freeland Fisher from the Christensen Institute, a really good example you just provided of the type of social capital and kind of career-oriented networking that young people really need and that I think online solutions uh, like the program that you're in can really play a big role in that. So I appreciate you sharing that, that example. So that mentoring program is really focused on career goals, but, you know, through my relationship with the mentee, you know, she had to travel back to China because of the pandemic. Her mother recently had to go to the emergency room, not for anything related to COVID, but yeah, and so we've talked about some of her, the personal things going on in her life and having to quarantine when she got home. And, you know, now she's taking classes 
uh, in the middle of the night because she's finishing out her senior year at the school in the U.S. she was attending. And so, you know, our relationship has really grown, not just to be focused on her career goals, but to really encompass all of these personal aspects as well. So that, that's been nice for me to see as well. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I think, you know, I think oftentimes a relationship that starts off around a fairly instrumental or kind of goal-directed uh, focus, oftentimes once you get to know each other, you can't help but care about each other as individuals. And I've heard many stories uh, during this pandemic of mentors that thought they were just going to be doing, you know, whatever with a kid, you know, some skill building or something are now really much more deeply involved in that young person's life and helping them cope emotionally and, and you know, uh, just with everything that's happened in the last year or so. And so uh, in a weird way, it's uh, an odd blessing, a terrible way to arrive at that blessing. But, um, you know, I do think this is an opportunity for mentors, much as you've done, to kind of step up and go go even deeper. So appreciate you you sharing that. I want to ask about something that uh, you and I worked on, it uh, feels like a million years ago now, but I think it was late last year and, and early this year around, uh, we worked on a supplement to mentors elements of effective practice that was focused on e-mentoring and kind of what are the practices that, um, you know, practitioners should be doing as they're setting up and maintaining these programs over time. And we'll certainly wind up talking quite a bit here about practices uh, from that resource. But part of what we did on that was do a fairly thorough uh, literature search, really looking at the research on e-mentoring. And I guess I'll start with a, a pretty broad question here, which is kind of how strong is our evidence around e-mentoring that is it is effective uh, in supporting young people? I know that early in my career, I was fairly skeptical about, you know, could you replicate some of this online and and so I'm just curious your broad thoughts around kind of the strength of the evidence we have and and is that fairly generalizable or do e-mentoring programs tend to be kind of narrowly focused and, and serving uh, you know, only small groups of youth or, or certain contexts? So I'm just curious your thoughts around kind of what we know broadly. Yeah, so we have some evidence that e-mentoring can work for some groups of young people. Right. For, for instance, I just finished writing a paper, a review article that focused on mentoring of youth with health issues, such as juvenile diabetes or physical disability or youth who received an organ transplant. And so the limited number of studies that exist for that population of youth seems very promising. We also have evidence that e-mentoring could help with academic and career focus outcomes. So for example, iMentors program or I could be but what we do not have yet is large-scale evidence. So testing an e-mentoring model with a large, varied population of youth. Uh, we also don't have studies that compare e-mentoring to in-person mentoring to no mentoring at all. Uh, that would require a very large and expensive three-arm study. But if we were able to do that, it would certainly help us to better understand what the true role of e-mentoring is for youth. So we, we can't just compare the outcomes of an in-person program X with the outcomes of an e-mentoring program Y, right? Because they're, they're quite different. They have to be delivering the same program content or theory of change in order to make that comparison. Um, and I'm actually hoping that 
now that many more people are seeing the value in e-mentoring because it's of, of its necessity in many cases due to the pandemic, that we'll actually start to see more studies on its effectiveness. No, I appreciate that. And and my recollection from that uh, research that we looked at was, was similar to yours. I, I thought that we had pretty good evidence, especially around um, things related to young people with health conditions, uh, young people with disabilities, uh, for whom getting out and meeting in person in the community might be a challenge. I believe there were some things around rural youth that maybe just didn't mm-hmm. have direct access to a large pool of skilled mentors close by. Uh, so I definitely recall seeing that, but I, I think you're right. Uh, the application to kind of broad youth development focus, kind of whole child mentoring, I didn't see hardly any programs that were doing that. They're probably doing it now because they have to, but yeah. um, there was not a lot there in in the research, unfortunately. One other kind of quick question, because you mentioned these different contexts or maybe subgroups of youth that uh, we had good evidence around. Was there anything that you recall in that literature around different technologies? I don't recall any studies that were comparing, you know, video versus email, for example. But is, is there anything that you think broadly jumps out around are certain technologies maybe more effective or, or not? Not that comes to mind. I In the review that I did on mentoring for health outcomes, there were just a couple of studies that might have looked at email communication only between mentors and mentees versus email and then like video chats. But, you know, that was just one or two studies. So you can't really make broad conclusions from those. Yeah, and I I do recall there were a few that had really looked at what was effective with email and text communication, right? Because there there are no uh, nonverbal cues. (laughs) You can't read tone. Um, And, you know, there were some things that I think rose up as as being meaningful, you know, and a lot of it was around the frequency of interaction and, you know, uh, are you remembering to kind of give the young person prompts to respond to and and some of that. But, you know, I've just heard anecdotally from practitioners over the last half year that when they can do it, uh, video is is obviously, I think, preferred because you can see each other. It feels a little bit more like uh, perhaps when you were meeting in person. So, Right. And the other thing is the technology has been shifting so rapidly that even if you have research on one type of technology, it might be irrelevant now, right? So I remember some of the literature we reviewed was focused on email communication or just text. And, you know, since what, 2007, when the first smartphone came out, now we have apps to consider. And now with everybody using video conferencing, you know, that might be another technology to consider in terms of the evidence base. So, you know, in general, with with research on e-mentoring, I think we also have to be good about keeping up with the technology so that the evidence we have now isn't doesn't quickly become outdated, you know, five yeah. or 10 years from now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, it's funny you mentioned kind of how quickly that uh, kind of becomes dated. I remember reading some, one of those papers was about some fancy bulletin board type thing, which, you know, yeah. now seems completely antiquated, but this paper was like, 
less than a decade old, I think, and they yeah. were just gushing about this online bulletin board. I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, it <laughs> definitely, it made me feel old, uh, for sure. Um, so I want to then, you know, let's shift to kind of the present and, you know, to your point about uh, keeping up with technology and, and you know, kind of trying to be modern in what we're, we're using technology-wise for mentoring. Um, I wanted to ask about some of your work. You've got a lot of projects going. You've got bunch of funding. I mentioned that NIH project earlier. Just what do you have going on in terms of uh, research uh, that's using technology, whether it's around kind of relationship-centered health programming or, or other things? How are you using technology in the mentoring that you're studying? Yeah, so I have a few, a few big e-mentoring topics that I'm looking at. So the first is um, I have a couple of NIH-funded studies that focus on what I call technology-enhanced men- mentoring. And in those studies, we actually have been building an app where we're testing. It's designed to help mentors to be more effective in mentoring on sensitive health issues. So for instance, we have one version of the app that focuses on sexual health and reducing HIV among older adolescents who are at high risk. Another version of the app that we're working on right now is focused on helping mentors to address substance use issues with younger mentees, um, primarily focused on prevention. We're also currently pursuing funding to create a third version of the app that focuses on mentors helping to address mental health issues in youth, not to take the place of a therapist, but to be able to identify mental distress signs to talk with their mentee using mental health first aid before they can get connected with the appropriate services. So right now our app is focused on being a digital resource for mentors. It provides them with information. It quizzes them on their knowledge. There's a chat bot to help them practice having tough conversations. And the bot even mimics, you know, like what an adolescent might respond or not respond. There are also little pieces of shareable content that the mentor can share with their mentee, either through social media or texting to help start these tough conversations. And eventually, we'll be able to add a component where the mentee will also be able to use the app to connect with the mentor. So one thing we found in our formative research and designing the app that eventually we'll need to add is a place for mentees and mentors to connect completely virtually. So right now, the app is meant to enhance an in-person mentoring relationship, but eventually we want to get to a place where mentors and mentees can actually find each other using the app. So for instance, for young men at high risk for HIV, because they have relationships with other men, they may want a gay male mentor, but, but also to be able to connect with such a person in a private, virtual manner. So that's really been my goal throughout the last few years of my research. Number one, to bring mentoring to youth who may have a hard time connecting with in-person programs, particularly youth who are marginalized or have stigmatized identities. And then two, to enhance mentors' ability to talk about tough topics in a way that does not require them to come to a program office for multiple hours of additional training. So our app is really meant to address both of these gaps in, in mentoring practice. Really, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a, an extra wrinkle on this that I hadn't really been thinking about. I've been just been thinking, how do we connect young people and mentors uh, through technology? But you're really coming at it as this enhancement and a kind of a training delivery 
system and a skill building thing for mentors. And I think uh, it's another really good and interesting uh, wrinkle. Uh, I like the idea of the mentor and the youth being able to go on there together and perhaps go through some content together. I know Gene Rhodes is working on a similar thing where there are different mental health apps kind of within an app she's working on uh, where the mentor is in kind of this supportive accountability role, helping that young person partake in other evidence-based uh, forms of support, whether it's mental health or mindfulness. I, I think they uh, have an academic, like a Khan Academy uh, thing in there as well. So, uh, But I think a lot of it is about training up that mentor to to have those conversations because really it doesn't matter. Well, it may matter, but whether it's in person or, or, you know, virtually those are tough conversations. And I know if I was a mentor about to embark on something like that and bringing up a topic like that, I would really appreciate having uh, content and an app that I could turn to uh, even practicing kind of what I would say or how I'd react to certain scenarios. Uh, so that's, that's really a, a cool use of technology. I have a habit of picking the the tough issues to tackle. So. Yeah, well, but those um, are that's where men, that's what mentors need. I mean, everyone can talk about you know what do you want to be when you grow up. It's a lot harder to talk about uh, some of the topics that you mentioned, right? And the more information mentors have, the less likely they are to to do something harmful in that conversation. Something that really subverts uh, the good work they're trying to do. So. Right. Especially now with the pandemic, I mean, the issues around adolescent mental health and increased levels of substance use. I mean, these are topics that are going to come up in mentoring relationships. And, and so I really feel like mentors need to be equipped to be able to handle those topics. And that's really what we're trying to get to with the app. Um, I did want to mention another project that it, you know about um, that we're working on with I Could Be. And of course, you and some of your colleagues at Mentor. And that's looking at what mentoring programs need in order to either transition their program to be completely virtual or to add an e-mentoring component to their current program model. With I Could Be in the programs that joined the virtual uh, mentoring platform early in the pandemic, we'll be looking at what barriers they encountered, what helped them to be successful, what further support they needed. And for mentoring programs who are interested in in incorporating e-mentoring, but have not yet done so, we'll be doing a SWOT analysis with each of those programs. So we'll help them to identify the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats that will either support or hinder their e-mentoring program success. And the result of this research we're hoping is to create a tool for the mentoring field that will help programs to assess their own capacity to do e-mentoring. I've been calling it the uh, e-mentoring readiness assessment. And my hope is that it'll really help programs to be strategic about their transition process so that they avoid a lot of missteps that can happen along the way when you're working with technology. You know, there's this misconception that you can take an in-person mentoring program and just put it in front of the computer or into a Zoom call. But to do e-mentoring really well, there are several aspects to take into account, of course, as we've outlined in the e-mentoring supplement. I appreciate you bringing up that other project, and it's a perfect segue into what I was going to ask you about next. But as you noted, that project hasn't really kicked into gear yet, and uh, we don't have quite the research we were hoping to draw from to fully build out that readiness assessment tool. But 
my question here is, is you mentioned the scenario, which is I'm an in-person program, COVID hits, uh, we've managed to get by to this point with phone calls and, and Zoom meetings or whatnot, but there are bigger questions at play about how, if this is going to be kind of a new normal and not just a temporary thing that we're doing during this, you know, we wish it would have been a short-term uh, pandemic, but it has not turned out that way. I guess, what advice do you have? Uh, what should they be thinking about if I'm a traditionally in-person program that I now need to incorporate virtual meetings into what I'm doing with young people? Uh, you know, both kind of short-term emergency thinking, but for the long-term, uh, you know, this may come back again. There'll be other uh, pandemics or other circumstances that may require virtual meetings. So what, what advice in general do you have for programs that want to transition, at least in part, from in-person to, to virtual? So I've always considered myself to be an early adopter of new technologies. So perhaps I saw this coming before many other folks did, but I think technology can enhance mentoring relationships in all sorts of ways. Um, think about how much youth use tech. They FaceTime with their friends when they're just walking down the street. They have group chats set up on WhatsApp. They share their creativity using TikTok or Instagram. So if, if as mentors or mentoring programs, if we're going to work with Generation Z youth, we really have to be tech savvy ourselves in order to meet them where they are. I had a mentee several years ago. Uh, she was 14 years old at the time, younger living in Baltimore City. We were officially matched for three years. And while we did our in-person meetings, I was also traveling a lot internationally for my work at that time. And so we stayed connected on social media and I would call her using FaceTime and other platforms while I was abroad. And it really helped to maintain our relationship while I was out of town. And honestly, I feel like we had the most sensitive conversations through text, not in person. You know, she would text me when she was having problems at home. She would text me when she thought she might be pregnant. And I would send her photos of different places I was visiting in the world to help expose her to, you know, different cultures or, or ways of life. All of that to say, you know, my advice to traditionally in-person mentoring programs is to embrace the technology, encourage your mentors to do video calls with their mentees, get on the social media platforms and pay attention to the people that your mentee follows. It, it'll help you to understand a mentee better and to relate to them. And you know, maybe it'll make you look cool. <laughs> but I think the most important thing for mentoring programs is to make sure their mentors are comfortable with the technology. Mentees have already got it figured out. You know, I mean, wow, even my my four-year-old knows how to log into his iPad and go to the PBS Kids app for his favorite shows. Your mentees are already immersed in this technology. And if a mentoring program has mentors who are a little older or did not grow up using apps and social media or video conferencing at work, then they, they need to be able to learn this really well. As the dad of a 14-year-old and, and someone who's fairly online myself, I can tell you it will not make you cool in their eyes, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's just because I'm the dad, not a mentor. Um, but I, so, oh, go can ahead. Can I ask, add one other thing? I, sure. I, also, I also think it's important for mentoring programs to understand a bit of child and adolescent development in order to understand what is an appropriate use of technology for a given age group. So 
I'll give another example from my four-year-old. So early in the pandemic, his preschool was offering all sorts of virtual activities, such as story time, music class. They even did a gym class, cooking classes online. And he had no patience for those activities whatsoever because he couldn't interact with anyone. Everybody was there on video, but they had them muted. And he, he just didn't get it. And he would get frustrated and he would just leave a few minutes into it. But then he started talking with one of his teachers on video calls and they would have dance parties together. She would show him, she would ask him to show her something that was, for instance, the color red. She would encourage him to eat a snack while she read him a story. And he would sit on calls with her for over an hour. And I say all of this to say that mentoring programs must do their homework on what is developmentally appropriate for kids of different ages. An eight-year-old is not going to want to sit on a video call with you for an hour and just talk. It needs to be more engaging. A 15-year-old might find it fun if the mentor and mentee do a cooking class together on YouTube, for instance, from their respective homes. But the virtual activity cannot be simply the regular programming put on video. It has to be developmentally tailored to the youth the program is serving. And, you know, for my son, his his preschool teacher, I was really impressed that she had clearly done her homework on what activities would be engaging for a four-year-old. No, I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I've been telling every program that will listen that wants to know, you know, how do I do e-mentoring? And it, it really does go back to that theory of change of what is it you're trying to do and taking a hard look at can that be done virtually? I guarantee it probably can't be done virtually the way you were doing it in person. And I think the right. examples you gave there are, are perfect around, you know, we have to make this more interactive than it might have been otherwise, or we need to give more opportunities for everyone to share or, you know, whatever it may be, um, you know, just trying to do programming as usual on a screen, uh, especially if, as you noted, it's it's pretty heavy on conversation and sharing. Maybe if you're in an established match with an older youth and you you know each other well, and uh, you know exactly. maybe you can just keep that going virtually. But I think, especially for new matches or programs that are really dependent on kind of a rich you know set of activities, figuring out how to do them virtually or doing something else that gets at the same thing that you're trying to work on, right? Um, that's tough. I mean, and it just takes time to figure out, I think, how to do it. That's a good segue actually into kind of a variation on this that I wanted to ask you about around which types of mentoring programs are probably going to struggle with this the most? And in particular, I've been thinking a lot about group mentoring programs, especially because those seem to really, like the magic of group mentoring is often the interaction between the young people. It's often taking place at a school or some other place where these young people may have relationships outside the program itself. But when they're in the program, they can be uh, kind of a cohesive unit that uh, shares and grows and learns together. And there's something about that group cohesion that, that really drives what you see there. I have to imagine that that's really hard to do 
uh, virtually to create that same kind of in-person magic. So is there anything in particular for group mentoring programs or maybe cross-age peer programs where you typically would have a lot of people in the same physical space? I mean, are they just kind of stuck trying to do that with Zoom meetings? <laughs> and uh, anything in particular you'd, you'd tell group programs or programs like that? So we, we know very little about group e-mentoring. So if there are opportunities for research and e-mentoring, the opportunities for group e-mentoring research are even greater. And so it, this is not evidence-based, but my feeling is that e-mentoring could use a group model, but again, it has to be done in a very thoughtful way. So group chats and group calls, very common now, either through apps like WhatsApp or the now famous or infamous Zoom, but to do group video calls, I recommend that they be small groups. So maybe six or fewer people in order to be most effective and give everyone a chance to participate. They should also use some sort of way to allow people to chime in without talking over each other. So do you remember when you were a kid, the game, it was like past the stick or something like that, or yet you could only talk when you had it in your hands? Oh, yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So group calls should have something like that in place. Some platforms, they'll allow you to raise your hand if you want to contribute, or a program could be more creative and say something like, you know, put on a hat if you, if you want to speak. It's also very easy for people to disengage when on group calls. So I think that's important to keep in mind when figuring out virtual group mentoring. I think many of us are experiencing Zoom fatigue. So programs have to come up with a way to engage their youth so that they do not get distracted by other things when they're in a group session. So for instance, say you have a group soccer-based mentoring program, perhaps learning a new technique and then having each person demonstrate it might be a way to do that. Or you could do fun games using group video where one person starts by telling a sentence of a story and then the next person has to say another sentence to continue the story. You know, little creative activities like that could make a group mentoring meetup fun. Um, and of course, there are also game apps that could be used with groups. But again, we don't we don't really know a lot about how group e-mentoring can function effectively. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing what programs come up with, especially now that many of them are, are having to uh, engage their groups using virtual means. Yeah, and you mentioned several of the things that I'd heard working well uh, for groups, that kind of interactive uh, joint storytelling or, you know, things of that nature um, where the young people have to collaborate, you know, but doing it a little bit differently uh, through through their screen. I wanted to ask about another kind of variant on e-mentoring that I think I saw represented pretty well in that literature search that that we did. And that's kind of what I might call kind of distributed mentoring, where you have these mentoring environments that uh, where the young person isn't necessarily matched with a single mentor, but really are part of kind of an online community of many, many, many mentors. So one good example of this was a uh, program in Germany. I don't remember the name of it uh, off the top of my head, but it was for girls and young women who were interested in STEM careers. And really, this it was a bulletin board type thing where they could be on there 
and they had recruited female scientists from all over Germany to serve as mentors. And uh, it was fairly open, is my understanding, in which they could ask any question of kind of the whole group if they made a connection with, you know, I want to be a biologist and I really have gotten to know the five biologists on here. They could have little side conversations. But uh, what is your opinion of that kind of broad access mentoring <laughs> type platform? Do you think those have, have decent evidence of effectiveness? And, and is that maybe under these circumstances a good way to get mentoring to young people if doing one-to-one connections is is proving to be a challenge? Good question. So the, the success of those programs would really depend on the age of the mentees and the types of youth they're serving and also the outcomes of interest. So for example, if asking a young mentee, say 12 years old, to interact with multiple adults that might seem very daunting or make them feel too self-conscious um, given their developmental stage. It's just not a good fit for that age. That might be better suited for older teens who have developed some self-confidence, self-advocacy skills. And then the outcomes a program desires will also determine success. So if a program is interested in building mentees' ability to develop networking skills, then yes, having a pool of mentors that they could reach out to would absolutely be appropriate. But if you're looking to build social-emotional learning or perhaps self-confidence or something that's more dependent on a deeper relationship connection and a trust in that relationship, then I think working with one mentor or a small number of consistent mentors might be a better option. I wanted to ask one last question here around an issue that I've heard pop up from practitioners that have been wanting to do virtual mentoring because of the pandemic, but are worried about safety issues, particularly for school-based programs where generally mentors are not allowed to call the child or exchange phone numbers or email them. It's site-based, so you're not going to the young person's home. And now they're in a situation where if they're going to meet, you might have to relax some of that or put in other protocols. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts for practitioners around uh, if they have safety concerns, maybe things that they could do that might mitigate that or or you know things that they should maybe worry less about than, than they are. Yeah. So uh, some of my colleagues may not agree with me on this, but the research and the statistics show that you know, if you're if concerning a young child being exploited in some way, that's more likely to happen in person with somebody that they know than occurring online. And, you know, we, we see shows like To Catch a Predator, we hear about these, these stories sensationalized, but the reality of it is that those incidents are, are very rare. And the bigger threat is, is actually somebody that the child knows and trusts. So my, when I'm working with programs, especially if they're interested in moving to e-mentoring, as I say, if, you're, if you still have the mentor screening procedures in place, you know, you're still doing background checks, you're interviewing them, you're getting to know who they are, you're checking their online profiles, you know, they're you're looking at their social media, you're Google stalking them, you know, whatever it takes to see who this person is online. That, that should be enough to 
to feel confident that you're not putting this child in harm's way. I know some programs are, particularly with younger kids, are much more comfortable at having a, a protected platform where they can monitor all of the interaction between mentors and mentees. And I, and I think that's, that's totally fine. But I, I do think that in, in some cases, the concern about online safety is, is a bit overblown. In fact, there's, um, there's a great book by Dana Boyd. I think it's from 2014. But I assign it in my class where I teach about children, media, and health. And the book talks about the, the actual evidence that um, you know, children and young people are not, that being online is not necessarily a dangerous place for them. In fact, it, it provides a lot of opportunities for them to get to know their own identities, to connect with other people who have shared experiences, you know, particularly for stigmatized youth, LGBTQ youth, youth with eating disorders or mental health issues, et cetera. They find being online a place of comfort because they can find people who understand them. And so I often take the lessons from that book and apply it to my own work that if we are fearful of connecting mentors and mentees in an online or virtual space, that's really limiting the opportunity for those youth. And so as long as those initial protections are in place, mentors are being screened and background checked, I don't think it's a, it's a big concern. And I think you're probably right that we tend to overinflate uh, some of those online dangers. You know, I, uh, as someone old enough to remember when none of these technologies existed, I mean, anything that's new is often a little scary, but I think we've all gotten used to at some level uh, being online individuals as is part of our identity. And so I think you're right, denying caring adults to young people because of some of those concerns might actually do more more harm than than we think. So Yeah, and as as we become more comfortable with the technologies, people have less less fewer of those fears. And since I just mentioned uh, new technology being scary, I'll ask you one last <laughs> question here. Uh, you mentioned that you're an early adopter of things. So is there anything coming technology-wise on the horizon that you think has promise for application and mentoring? Obviously, the ease with which we can do video uh, chats and stuff now, I think uh, even five years ago, that was much more difficult for folks to do. Anything bubbling up? Is there, you know, a TikTok-based mentoring thing coming, <laughs> or is there, uh, you know, is there some technology that old people like me don't know about uh, that I should have on my radar? Yeah, yeah. So personally, I'm a huge advocate of using social media with young people, um, especially with mentees who are in their their tweens or teens stage. They are already on these platforms, and no, they're not on Facebook. That's for older folks like us. So mentors. I think just have to become comfortable with the latest social media. Uh, do the TikTok video with them or use some of the apps that gamers use. Follow the lead of young people. You know, I'll say it again. If you want to reach today's youth, then you have to be tech savvy and be an early adopter of the technology just like they are. I've loved watching some of my parent friends connecting with their kids through TikTok challenges during the pandemic. You know, they'll They'll do the dances or whatever the challenge was and then record the reaction of their kids. 
And you can just see how using that technology allowed the parent and child to connect in a way that was youth-friendly. And the, the same could be done with mentors and mentees. Now, the future of, of TikTok in the U.S. is unknown, but that's an example of how an adult can connect with a young person using their media. A, a couple of other things. So the, the gaming world is huge, and kids are already connected with each other through it. So another personal example, I have two nephews, one in Pennsylvania, one in Florida, and they see each other maybe twice a year. But they are constantly playing each other on video games. And even their friends have gotten to know each other through these games. So mentors and mentees could be taking advantage of that technology. And I'll also say that virtual reality is becoming more and more common. And you're actually starting to see a lot of research on the effectiveness of virtual reality for romantic relationships in the, in the psychology world. So maybe in the next few years, we'll start to see virtual reality mentoring where you could sit with your mentor and eat pizza in the same virtual room while talking about you know, that school, school bully, or even if you're not physically in the same space, you're, in, you're miles apart. Personally, I'm, I'm really excited about those possibilities. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think way back, you know, at least a decade ago, I came across someone that was doing a mentoring program in Second Life. I don't know if Second Life yeah. is even around now, but you it's one of those things where you got like a little avatar of yourself and, and could literally walk around in kind of a virtual campus-like environment. And that's where you would meet your mentors. Your avatars would go, uh, you know, as you said, get a meal or go sit in the library or something like that. Uh, it was pretty neat. I also liked your point about mentors just taking the responsibility to be familiar with technology. There's nothing that frustrates me more than an older adult who is like, oh, that's just, I, I can't be bothered, you know, technology. I don't, I don't get it. It's like, hey, my 96-year-old grandmother in rural Iowa in a town of a thousand people has a little iPad uh, that one of my aunts set her up with and she can FaceTime people, right? And yeah. uh, if she can figure it out, Literally anybody can figure it out at some <laughs> level. So uh, we really should encourage mentors to step into that void. It's the same thing we ask young people to do when we ask them to step up and try something that they haven't done before. So right. uh, maybe a good opportunity for mutual learning there. Michelle, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to say to our audience about e-mentoring or the use of technology? Anything that we didn't cover here? I guess, you know, just something that, that I've been thinking about in my own research pre-pandemic and now especially during the pandemic is there is so much opportunity to use technology to reach more youth, you know, whether it's reaching youth who don't have access to, you know, traditional in-person mentoring programs or connecting youth with mentors who don't have people with shared experiences in their own community or shared identities. And I really see technology-enhanced mentoring, whether that's a hybrid program or a completely virtual program, that's, to me, that's really what the future of, of mentoring is going to be. Great. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you, Michelle. As always, this was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your insights and uh, kind of the understanding that you bring to this topic. Uh, I do want to end with our 
traditional bonus round uh, question, which is where we flip it around and you get to ask me a question. I have no idea what you're going to ask me, but you know, if there's anything that you'd like to ask me, uh, go ahead. All right. So I'll ask you a fairly easy question. I want to know, I, so I know you're on Twitter, but I want to know what your favorite social media platform is and what, what you like to post, what kind of content you like to post, but also what you like to see posted. Are you a like kittens and puppies video guy or <laughs> what, what's uh, your vibe? <laughs> so uh, I, the only social media platform that I am on is Twitter. I actually have a work account where I tweet about mentoring things and a, a personal account, which is a combination of politics comedy and Oregon duck football, uh, which is unfortunately is yet to be played this year while everyone else is attempting a season. But uh, I think the PAC 12 is actually voting as we speak here on whether they're going to play uh, a season at all this year, uh, try and squeeze uh-huh. one in. Part of me kind of hopes they don't, to be honest, um, because I want those young men and, and their families and the coaching staffs to be safe, right? And sure. I, I think we're all in the middle of a pretty big experiment to see if that's going to be possible. And so as amateurs, you know, I kind of uh, cringe at that a little bit more than perhaps the NFL moving forward with it. But yeah, I, I've really only ever done Twitter and I got onto it mostly originally to just kind of follow you know, people that I either knew personally or a lot of comedians. I'm a big comedy fan. So uh, certainly that's a fun way of getting uh, some humor injected into your day is to follow a bunch of really funny people yeah. on Twitter. But I don't do the Instagram. Uh, my wife follows my kids on Instagram. And so she's keeping track of what they're posting on that platform. Uh, I've never done the Facebook, though. I, I feel like I just wind up arguing with uh, my relatives and loved ones if I was on the Facebook. So I am one of the few people proudly not on it at this point. I have limited my my use to just the, the Twitter. So. so we're not going to see you on any TikTok dance-offs or anything like that. Give, give my children <laughs> some time. Although I think it's interesting, and I almost brought this up with you. Like I have heard a little bit anecdotally that young people are reluctant to do some e-mentoring because they view that digital space as theirs for young yep. people, right? They kind of don't want to talk to their mentor on, you know, a platform that is where they talk to their friends. And so, you know, I think some of this, you know, I appreciate you encouraging mentors to kind of make use of these tools, but, you know, you got to kind of make sure, I guess, that that young person uh, wants you there in that way, right? They may view that as intruding into I think my kids would be mortified if I was on Instagram (laughs) posting things. They'd they'd probably block me. So, (laughs) well, yeah, and kids have way of working around that, right? They might have their uh, adult-friendly profile, and then they might have their their private profile. So, and we see that with different types of youth groups. Like in one of my studies um, with gay men, young gay men, we found out that they would have their like public profile where, you know, there wasn't stuff about them being gay. And then there was their other profile where they were open about that and they would only invite certain people to view it. So, yeah, I mean, people definitely have these curated identities to some extent on social media. So yeah, that's yeah. something important to, to keep in mind. 
Well, I hadn't even considered the possibility that my kids would have alternate accounts. And so now I'm oh, terrified yeah. and I'm going yeah. to log <laughs> off and go check their Sorry. phones. No, no, it's okay. Uh, well, Michelle, this has been a really great conversation. I always appreciate uh, your time and your thoughts. Uh, go ahead and wrap us up here. Thank you to our audience for joining us today. I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. I will also note that if you are a program that is trying to figure out how to switch to virtual uh, mentoring, either in part or for the short term or the long term, whatever your needs are around that, uh, you can always get free technical assistance through the National Mentoring Resource Center project. Just go to nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org. Um, I will note for folks that we're in the process of revising that website and kind of uh, retooling it a little bit. So it may look a little bit different, uh, might be a little easier to find some resources on there uh, around the end of the year. So look for a relaunch of that uh, in the months to come. I really appreciate everyone joining us today. Michelle, thank you as always. Thank and, you, Mike. That was yeah, fun. Anytime. And just remember, uh, you know, we do have research on mentoring and, uh, the science does matter, as it always does. But as we talked about today, sometimes we don't have as much research as we like, but it's always good to think about it, talk about it, and make use of the research-based information we do have. And so conversations like this one, uh, I think, can really help practitioners figure out where to go. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, thank you for joining us on Reflections on Research, and we'll see you next episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.